And we are ready and off once more. December the 6th, 2015, lecture discussion number 223 on the Book of Romans. Uh, And uh, once again now, well, what do you say? Once again, we saw the manifestation of evil as it was with the attacks in Paris. This one in California has demonstrated a stark divide. Almost astonishing to watch it. On one side are those who clearly see and immediately see evil as evil. As soon as evil shows up, one side says that is evil immediately without any hesitation. On the other side of that, however, are those who equivocate. Those who attempt to rationalize and dismiss and justify wicked acts. And it is uh, unmistakable now the stark differences. One is over here, the other is on the opposite side. And, and they see, by the way, the equivocation of those who dismiss evil, they are, they dismiss it irrespective of the overwhelming facts that are immediately obvious. We as a nation were repeatedly told Contrary to what was obvious over and over again that the events, the slaughter in San Bernardino, California, that that was an inconclusive attack. And that caused many, many people to ask the same questions. The people that recognized that it was a uh, an evil act by a dark, wicked, religious order, they ask, why can't the other side recognize this murdering for what it is? Why won't they say what it is? And uh, I heard that over and over and over again. And I'm sure you did too. And, And by the way, there's nothing wrong with the question, except that it's the wrong question. Instead of asking why so, so many are blind, willfully blind, ask the question that really is what you should be attending to. How is it that you saw it and knew what it was so quickly? They don't see it. They don't seem to know. Now, you may argue with me that some intentionally are deceiving. They actually do know what it is, but they have political or some other purpose for concealing it. But uh, again, I want you to focus on how is it that you see? In other words, how do you know evil when you see it and others do not? How can you tell evil from good? One of the principles of Scripture is the ability to know good from evil. It's how the Bible ultimately begins in this case of sin. How is it that uh, so many... Ask the the question of why can't people see? Why are people blind? Instead, ask why is there any good at all? Why is anyone able to see anything? Why are any saved? Why is there any goodness anywhere ever? As opposed to why is there evil? And why do the masses choose to be lost? See, all of those are the same question, aren't they? The question is not, how come so many are lost? The question is, why are any saved at all? Where does salvation come from? Why is it here? 
How do we get salvation? Where did it come from? Who sends it to us? What is its origin? The question isn't to focus on evil. The question is to focus on goodness. Evolutionary atheism, I say it all the time, cannot account for, cannot understand, cannot explain the origin. It has no explanation at all for goodness. It is one of the overwhelming flaws of the evolutionary philosophy. There is no explanation in evolution, monism, physicalism for goodness, self-sacrifice, altruism, or kindness. You'll never find an evolutionist, and I have debated them all. After a while, I just got tired because I kept going to the same subject. I kept saying to them, explain to your families that you will cease to exist. Look at your, I actually did it, as you know. Look at your son in the front row during this debate. Tell your son that when he dies, he will cease to exist. Wouldn't do it. So don't be surprised when the atheists are ambiguous. They actually have no logical alternative. To them, evil and goodness are identical, ultimately. They are merely physical acts. So don't be, again, surprised. I have what I call Chronister's Law of Goodness, and I'm I'm repeating it mostly for the Internet audience, not for you folks. Goodness only comes from what? Only comes from goodness. Goodness cannot come except from goodness. There must be goodness as the source. The law of goodness, just as the law of biogenesis, life must come from life. Life cannot come from non-life. That's an inviolable law that is never taught in school because it is absolutely contrary to evolutionary philosophy. But goodness also Similarly, must come from goodness. There is no place goodness can come from except from goodness. Evolution has no answers, nor is it interested in considering even the questions. Doesn't want to discuss the questions, the reality, the presence of life and goodness. It is not happenstance that life and goodness are the themes of, of what? Where do we see life and goodness Set side by side in literature. We see it in Genesis 1 and 2, don't we? The Bible says, life and goodness, life and goodness, life and goodness. Repeats it over and over again. He that creates life from himself, he who is life, he is the one that's giving life. Life has to come from life, right? Is also pure good. It is not an accident in Genesis 1 and 2 that life and goodness or set in a pairing. God repeatedly says in Scripture in the beginning, right? Over and over again, he says, it is good, it is good, it is good. Of course he would say that. Because good has created life. Good is a person. And he created life. Because he's good. Because he's good, Life. They're inseparable. So instead of useful discussions, 
such as an analysis of good versus evil, the origin of good and evil. Nowhere did you see anywhere in all of these accounts uh, of these evil acts, uh, in either here or in the past in, or in Paris, never did you see anywhere in our national media a discussion on the origin of good and the origin of evil and the origin of life and the origin of death. Never. And what were these events about? Good and evil, life and death. Never a discussion on the origins. The atheistic community uh, is not going to analyze good versus evil on purpose. They have a craving their craving for government is insati- insatiable. And they want to discuss government whenever one of these things comes about. And by the way, they're going to continue to come. Evil is growing. It is impossible to see that. I said last week that we are uh, as it was in 1938. So... The atheistic community responds to good and evil, not with discussions on the origin of good and evil, but but instead they crave for government and they want government now to confiscate the means of defense from the law abiding. And that's what they want to do. Everywhere you watch this week has been the call for a larger government to strip the means of defense from its citizens. By the way, as soon as you take the means of defense away from a citizen, he is no longer a citizen. He is now a subject. If you take the means of defense from the citizens, you have a twofold accomplishment of strengthening the government and simultaneously weakening the government to the delight of ruthless dictators everywhere. If you have no means to be sovereign, you have no means to individually defend yourself, then upon who are you now dependent? This continual demand that every time something evil happens, the solution from uh, one side is always to depend on the government for more things, for all things ultimately, and and the, the citizenry uh, to be stripped of the means to resist totalitarian control. But I digress. That's not really what I wanted to talk about today. What I wanted to talk about is the headlines in the East Coast media. One of them was, God isn't fixing this. Did you see that? That was the headline. God isn't fixing this. Along with articles that I discussed in the pregame where they are blaming the Jewish Christian. The man that was killed, that was targeted. They're blaming him for causing all of this. It is not, again, to repeat myself uh, from the part that didn't make the uh, broadcast here. The media has a built-in antipathy for Jewish Christians. Get used to that. That is not an accident that somebody wrote, wrote probably the, the least intelligent article in my lifetime blaming a victim for his own death because of things he said. My goodness. Where have we come to where something like that can make it into a major media outlet? That is astonishingly stupid. It's vile. And yet there it is alongside of God isn't fixing this. 
East Coast politicians declaring prayer to be useless as well. They said prayer, ultimately the politicians said that it is meaningless, perfunctory, uh, useless. I don't know if you call that. And I'm submitting that all of that is the same. God isn't fixing this. The Jewish Christian is actually, as they actually said this. The writer of this article said the Jewish Christian was equal in evil to the one that killed him. Is is horrifying, and I don't know what to say. I, I really don't know how to. Well, I do. I'm not surprised by it. It is exactly what the Bible predicts. So anyway, God isn't fixing this. Jewish Christians are evil, and uh, prayer is meaningless. Those are the headlines out of the East Coast of this country. And I submit that all of those are the same. Replacing God with government, declaring God to be non-existent, spiritual reality to be pointless, which, again, that's logical for the physicalists, right? If there's no spiritual reality, and to the physicalists there is no physical reality or spiritual reality, then all spiritual acts are invalidated. There wouldn't be any reason to have a spiritual act if there is no spiritual reality. I hope that makes sense. And the Jewish Christian being blamed for inciting the violence that ultimately had him murdered and all the people with him. Those are all absolutely the same. They are the natural conclusions of someone who cannot identify the origin of evil or the origin of good. That is how they're going to think. Every time. So let's just take a look at this one right here. God isn't fixing this. What's the obvious question to, to that? Why isn't the God of creation fixing this? What is this? They don't identify what this is. What is this? What is it that they're blaming God of not fixing? They're saying God is not fixing evil. What's implied in that? That he either is unable or unwilling, right? Why isn't the true God of creation fixing this? What exactly needs to be fixed? How exactly can it be fixed? What is necessary to fix it? What does the Bible say? Well, the Bible is very clear, as clear as it possibly can, can be. The Bible says there is only one solution to fixing evil. Only one. No other solution at all. One that is it's firmly established. One possible solution. The question then becomes, if there is one possible solution, why doesn't God do it? Why does he wait? That's not the correct question either. Why does God wait is not the correct question. correct question is what? Whom does he wait for? Who is he waiting for? Who is he waiting for? That's right. He is waiting for those who will be saved to be saved. That's us, by the way. He could have fixed this, as you know. He could have fixed evil. He could have fixed sin at the garden. He did not. He chose instead what? To wait for you. 
So that's why it's whom. You're in the whom. Me and you and us were the whom that he waited for. He knows us. He's outside of time. That's the question. What is the primary? See, prayer is meaningless to people that don't pray. Isn't that interesting? The people that say prayer is meaningless have no understanding of what it is, for one, and they never do it for another, and they don't think that there is any spiritual reality, so why should they engage in a spiritual event? What is the primary purpose of prayer? C.S. Lewis, as you know, I'm fascinated with C.S. Lewis's intellect and his ability to I say things in a pithy, succinct way that takes me weeks to say. He said this, he said, prayer does not change God. You must understand that prayer does not change God. He is immutable. He cannot be changed. So again, who? The question becomes who does prayer change? C.S. Lewis said it this way, prayer does not change God, prayer changes me. So you pray so that you will do what? Change. That's right. Very good. So these, these statements, God isn't fixing this, the prayer is meaningless, Jewish Christians should be killed. Eventually, the entire world will rise up and say, Jewish Christians will be killed. Where should be killed? Where will the Jewish Christians be when they do that, by the way? They will be in Israel. All of them will be Jewish Christians. All of them will understand that Christ is their God and their Messiah. And they will all convert. And the world will rise up as one and want them killed. So every time I see somebody blame a Jewish Christian, I go, oh my, isn't that interesting? So anyway, all of these questions and these issues are not, are not unresolved. They've all been discussed. They've all been resolved. It's fascinating that somebody doesn't know that God isn't fixing this is, is a simple elementary question. They'll put it in their paper and make a headline out of it. We know all the answers to all of these most educated people do. So the most obvious of the obvious questions then is the same as how I started. How is it that you know the answers to these things? See, that's the real question. You have to look at yourself and not say, why don't they know? You have to say, well, how is it that I know? Why do we know the answers? Don't ask why the New York media doesn't know the... They don't even know the questions, the New York media. They're certainly not going to know the answers. The New York media will never know the answers and never know the questions, Romans 1.28. They willfully choose to be blind. Why do they choose to be blind? Why aren't you blind? Those are the real questions. Okay. Enough of that. I know. It's hard to watch these kinds of things go by, especially in successive weeks, uh, and not get frustrated and upset. I understand that. It seems so simple. 
yet we are in a world that has lost its ability to function. And it's just going to get worse and worse. Remember my saying, it's got to get worse before it gets worse. So get ready. That's how it's going to go. Okay, we left off last week at Luke 14. That's where we are today. I think it's uh, 25 through 35 is about where we are. Maybe there's a verse on either side of that. Do you remember it? I, I don't know how many of you were here last week, but we'll read it again in a minute anyway. There is a priority to loving. Priority loving, if you want to call it that way. It's, love is a relative term. And it's discussed in Luke 14 as such. Uh, under the, the best way to look at it when you see the word is loved less. So we have the priority or the relative term of love with regard uh, to love less. We'll get to that in a minute. And then next came the cross beam. And then after that, of course, was the tower. And then the surrendering king. Followed by salt is good. Okay, that is uh, the synopsis very quickly of Luke 14, uh, 25 through 35. We're gonna, we should read it again and we will here in a second because it should be apparent, I hope it's apparent to you, that when you see it listed like that, the priority of loving or the relative term that is loving, the loving less, you must love something less than you love God, that in the crossbeam are in order, one and two, and then the tower, the king, and the salt. The conclusion to that is salt is good. So I have these things that conclude with salt is good. And remember, if salt is convicted of foolishness, uh, salt lost its flavor is an inaccurate translation. The accurate translation, if you convict salt of foolishness, and we we covered that of uh, last week. That is the conclusion to the priority relative term of loving crossbeam tower and king. I hope that makes sense to you. Salt, if salt is not, is convicted of foolishness, I ended last week of saying that that is an equivalency to if God is not God. Okay, so hopefully that catches everybody up and reminds you. Now let's go to Luke 14, 25 through 35 and read it again. This is, an, uh, again, uh, I can't say this often enough. Boy, oh boy, you never, you never on your first time through find things that are in the Bible. You have to go back and back and back and back and back. You'll, you'll never exhaust it. It's that amazing, and that's proof that it is God who wrote it. Now, <coughs> now, great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not love less his father, your Bible will have hate. And the actual term, again, it's a relative term there. It is love less. Same as it is for Esau and Jacob. And, and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also. He cannot be my disciple. 
And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him, who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. Okay? See the conclusion there? But if the salt has been convicted of foolishness, it is neither fit for the land nor for the dung hill, but men throw it out. He who has the ability to understand what I just said, hear me. That's what God, I changed that a little bit for you. Do you understand this? This is ultimately what he's saying there. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. There's my question. How is it that you have ears? Where did your ears come from? How come you hear? How come you see? Others do not hear. Others never will see. What's the difference? Okay. Now, last Sunday I covered the carrying of the cross beam. And I'll do it again um, really briefly here. I can never do it enough. Every time I do it, somebody comes to me and says, Man, I, I keep forgetting about that, and I'm glad you go over it again, and that's cool that you do that, and I appreciate it very much. And I know with the Internet, it's a big problem that we have. Some people will tune in today. They will have never heard any of this before. When you struggle under the weight of the cross beam, you are saying something. The Romans are making you say something. It was a Roman method of publicly demonstrating guilt. It was essentially a confession. Struggling under the weight of the crossbeam was the condemned man's confession document. That's what it meant. That's why they did it. The condemned man, by carrying the crossbeam, is publicly admitting guilt and saying to all that is watching him that he deserved his death by Roman execution. That is the what the crossbeam carrying depicts, and everyone knew it, but the people that do movies about it. Okay, there's a little, a little, uh, what should I call that? Provocative commentary. It should be obvious, right? Hopefully, you immediately realize that Jesus Christ, Jesus God, God Himself, would never confess the guilt. Why not? Because he doesn't have any. None of what the crossbeam represents is applicable to Christ. Not one shred of it carrying the crossbeam. Some people will say, well, he's carrying our sins. That's not what the Romans said it meant. Nor is that anything to what the crowd thought it meant. They all knew that it was a confession of guilt of a man who deserved to be executed. Christ would never have done it because he has no sin. He is perfect, perfect, pure good. And he did not confess 
his sin because he has none. Do I need to keep repeating that? So stop with that stuff and those movies. That's why I have such a hard time going to the movies. I see all the Christians going to the movies and they come out and they're all crying and weeping and so happy and I go, wow. You went to a movie that had Christ confessing guilt. You went to a movie that had Christ admitting he deserved to be executed. Something that he did not do, nor would he ever do. You can make the case logically that he not only would not confess, but he could not confess. Jesus Christ did not struggle under the weight of the cross beam. To say otherwise is to convict yourself of foolishness and to call God not God. And that pretty much recaps the crossbeam section from last Sunday. uh, I'm intentionally avoiding, not because I don't know he belongs here, but Simeon the Cyrenian and all the other Simeons that go together with the crossbeam carrying thing. Simeon Peter, Simeon of the, the brothers of whom Joseph imprisoned, Simeon the prophet, all of those Simeons, you go and get all the Simeons and you put them together and you have a full picture of this crossbeam amongst other things, also of Israel. I've done that previously. Ask Supper Dave where that is. I have no idea. Now, let us start investigating the foundation and the tower and separate out some of the pieces. Let's get rid of this. I'll leave uh, Luke up there. Then we'll start moving to the tower. See if we can get all the pieces, separate out the pieces, and figure it out. Now let's start over again. Now. Verse 25 starts with now. What comes next? Great multitude. That is amazing. That's a piece of information that is very, very important. We begin with this great multitude. What's the obvious question? Yeah, how many is great? It's a great multitude. It's following him. Why is it following him? Why this mass? Thousands and thousands of people. There might be a hundred thousand people here. It's certainly within the realm of possibility that there is a hundred thousand people here. Why are they following him? And he turns to them and says, if anyone comes to me, isn't that interesting? He turns to them and says, there's a priority. I must be first. Everything, everyone must be loved less than me. What does that mean? How much less? Why must he be loved first? doesn't mean that no one else is loved. It means that he is loved most. Everything else is loved less. How does that translate? What I mean by that is what is accomplished by those who put Christ first? How do I identify them? How do I say that is somebody that loves 
Christ first and loves everything else less than Christ? How do I identify somebody? What evidence is discernible? How is it defined by God? How does God define it? Of whom will it be said at the throne? We will all be there. All of us. Of, of whom of us will it be said that this is one that put God first? That put Jesus first? That loved Jesus, loved God most of all things that he loved? How do we demonstrate that Christ is our highest priority? Does that make sense? I'm trying to say it as many different ways as I can. By the way, to bring come back to this great multitude, let's concede the hypothesis or the premise that I proposed that it would be on the outside edge, probably mathematical statistics. It's a hundred thousand people. He turns and says, what? Everything I just previously read. He talked about a priority of love. He talked about a building a tower. He talked about the king and he talked about salt. What's so amazing about that? They heard him. I want you to go out to the Sullivan Arena or the new UAA Arena, go down on the floor and start talking to 5,000 people. Are they going to hear you? They heard him. So now we're in a discussion of physics of sound, aren't we? How loud was his voice? Let's just imagine. Here's Christ. I'm going to put Christ here. Somebody wrote me and told me that I shouldn't use the uh, cross. Um, they're concerned that it is not uh, a Christian symbol. Uh, I'll get to that someday. But let's assume that i got to draw it smaller. No, that's good enough. There's Christ. And then around him are, and I'm going to give it to you that they're around him. You can see that my board's not big enough, right? If you have him being extremely loud right here, what, what does that do to these people? Yes, I'm, I've got problems, don't I? In order to reach these, I have to have so many, I might have to have uh, uh, 250 decibels. Probably not. Probably do it with about a maybe 200 decibels. But I got to be, I got to be F16 loud here to reach thousands and thousands of people. And if I am that loud at the source, that's bad news for all of these folks, right? So it is a miracle that everybody. No, it's not. It's just God doing what He does, right? He gets His voice. Everyone hears His voice, right? Anyway, set that aside. Just notice that when these great multitudes come to him and he speaks to them, they all hear every single word he says. That's what he does. Ask why does he do it that way? Note the progression of our responsibility to declare ourselves guilty. Right after he gives these references, he says, now, crossbeam time. We really are guilty. First he says there's a priority to love, and then he says crossbeam time. 
So, love, crossbeam. Why is crossbeam after love? Why isn't tower after love? Why isn't the king before tower? Why this order? This is God. Has he thought of the order? He has. He's decided that after he talks to you about your priority of love, that you need to be talked to about declaring yourself publicly deserving of your own execution. Once you say, those who have their priorities correct, sorry, once you declare yourself God first in your life, now, in your, so your priorities are correct. Now this public admission of guilt. Disciples of Christ know, we know, that we deserve to be executed. We deserve it. If you don't think you deserve to be executed, you're in trouble doctrinally. That means you do not have an analysis that is in any way accurate of yourself, of your sinful self. We have earned our death. We are guilty sinners who need mercy and salvation. And that mercy and salvation comes as a pardon. And that pardon has to be given to us. We can't possibly earn it. That is what he is saying here. When you're carrying a crossbeam, you're saying, God, I deserve death. And I know it. I need a Savior. If you love God, but don't think you need a Savior, then you have just canceled out what you started out saying. Does that make sense? I run into all kinds of people. As you know, I get all kinds of people write me. and People stop me. I, I do a really good job of disguising myself now. I've been, I was called last night, and, and they asked me if I was a pastor. And I said no. And it's done. Well, why don't you call yourself a pastor? Well, the profession is corrupt, for one. I'd rather call myself a septic engineer, I think, now. I'd like to have something at a higher level. I, I really, I don't, I'm halfway joking, but I, the other side of me, if you talk to my wife, uh, I'm so discouraged with what has happened uh, in this business of churchness. We have to understand who we are. I don't want people to think that I am better than they are, better than you. I am not. I am so frustrated with pastors that come to me and or people that have been in the church a long time and they come to me and say, I don't sin as much as those people over there. That's right out of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Guess what side you just got on? Stop that. You ha if you love God, you know that this crossbeam, you struggle under that crossbeam, and you deserve death. That's how it fits. That's why it comes next. Disciples who know Christ know that uh, they have to be given life. Without submission to this fundamental truth, coupled with, notice what happens. It says, uh, if anyone comes to me, That's how he starts. And also, he cannot be my... And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me. So, anyone comes to me has to have this priority. And then, you come after him 
within the crossbeam. So, the submission to the fundamental truth of our guilt and our sinfulness, our deserving of death, is coupled with this come after me, responding to the call of Christ. You have to have that to be in discipleship. That is the beginning, the introduction, if you will, to Christ's proof, for lack of a better word. His conclusion, again, is salt is good. And that's how we begin. And then he does this. Because, 4, verse 28. Go ahead, put because. If anyone comes to me and does not love his father and mother, wife and children, and brothers and sisters, less, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross, in other words, whoever does not understand his sinfulness and come after me for life, cannot be my disciple. Because... Because which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has the ability to finish it? Obviously, this statement by God himself that everyone heard, loud voice if you want to call it that, everyone heard it. Why does God have a loud voice? How come he wants to make sure everyone hears him when he talks? Why does he make sure everyone hears him when he talks? Answer that. What's his name again? What's God's name again? Salvation. He's always saving, right? So this statement about the tower that the great multitude heard is intrinsically connected to all that preceded it. See? So we have the priority of love. We have the crossbeam, discipleship come after me. Now we're going to talk about building a tower and a foundation system. Because that's the right thing to do. That's the perfect order to this. The priority of love or the relative comparison, the admission of our sinfulness and guilt, the understanding of our deserved sentence, the coming now after Christ, those, when you have all of that, you sit down, and you build a tower. Look what he says. Sit down first and count the cost. So sit down first and count. Which means what? Consider what I just said. Now's the time to sit down and start counting. And plan. You're going to build a tower now. And you better plan it. And are you going to be able to finish your tower? And if you can't finish your tower, what's going to happen? People are going to come up and make fun of you. Who are these people? Where did they come from? But he said, you will be mocked if you are not able to finish your tower. What does this mean? And as usual, there is no shortage of commentators who wrongfully conclude that what Christ is saying here is that our salvation is at risk, subject to our ability to finish our tower. And I know you've heard those sermons. That's why I started out saying wrongfully conclude, and they're probably predominant. They look at this and they say, well, let's see, For any, which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, that's talking about salvation. So you gotta better get your tower fixed in. If you don't get it done, then you're not gonna, you gotta come to me, by the way, and get your concrete, I'll charge you. 
I'll give you the plans for the tower. I've got some tower plans right over here. I've stamped them acceptable tower plans. They're for sale today. I'll make you a deal. There's no shortage of those people. Is the tower in the context? Is the tower salvation? That's your question. Let's find out. Let's just ask some more questions. Do you, do we, lay the concrete, the foundation of our salvation? Are you a concrete worker? Do you need a pump truck? Do you need a a building level? By that I mean a laser now. In the old days it was not done that way. Do you need a, uh, do you need a concrete mixer? Are you doing this? Do we finish our salvation? When he says, when you, do you have what it takes to finish it? Is he talking about finishing your own salvation? All of those. Do we lay our own foundation? Do we build our own salvation? Do we finish our own salvation? Those are rhetorical questions, assuming that you all answer definitively what? No. Are you kidding me? That is not applicable to salvation. And who, again, are these people who come around and mock? And they're, they are able to, to do something, aren't they? They're mocking you because they have discovered that you didn't do what? What didn't you do? Why are the mockers surrounding you? You didn't get your tower built. Some of you don't even get the foundation formed up. You don't even get a concrete truck delivered. You got nothing. You didn't even flatten the dirt. And then what happens when that happens? Here come the who. Here comes the East Coast media. That's a joke. Not really. Here comes the mockers. And what are they doing? They know something. What do they know? They know that you did not finish your foundation. What's the obvious question? You did not finish your tower. What's the obvious question? The obvious question is, how do they know? They are obviously, those that assemble to mock, they are obviously able to see the foundation is built and able to see the unfinished tower. Can they see your salvation? Is the spiritual visible? Why do they mock? When did they mock? Obviously, the foundation and the tower are visible. They're physical in some form because people can come and look at them and see whether or not you finished it. So they can make an analysis of it, an assessment. And and those who hate Christ and those who hate Christians, they're going to gather and mock. Get used to that. And they're going to mock those who have unfinished towers. And they're going to accuse the people that have unfinished towers of being unable to finish them. So uh, you have accusatory uh, elements here. So that's just part of it. What else are they accusing them of? Again, why do they do this? What's the motivation of the mockers? What does the mocker get for mocking? You got paid mockers? They're doing it for free? How do they do this and why do they do it? And clearly those who seek the eternal death of all men, and make no mistake, there are a plethora who seek the eternal death of all men. They are comforted that all men cease to exist. They want all men to cease to exist. They want everyone to die and have no hope. They, they dominate our university systems. So those who seek the eternal death of all men, who wish that none be saved, they have believed and they are believing the lie of Satan that 
that God's plan of salvation will be judged to be unjust. And they'll use whatever they find to that end. And I have, however, on purpose, somewhat passed over a key element of this discussion. And now I'm going to put it back in. I read it, so I was fair. But I did it quickly on purpose so that you would miss it. Because I am a trained professional. Now I have the note. i got to put it in with the appropriate emphasis. So let's go back and do this, because this will help you understand. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life. Yes, his own life. Anyone comes to me. Notice, anyone can come. Salvation is for anyone. And does not love less his father and mother compared to loving me, Christ, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life. That is essential to understand. He cannot be my disciple. Yes, his own life also. I should quickly add to stave off the inevitable internet letters. I am indeed aware uh, that Christ's words here are masculine-centric. It does not say father, mother, husband, does it? It says father, mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters. Husband's not in the text. Husband is missing. That's not news to most women. Why do you suppose God left out husband there? Why is he speaking to husbands? Why is he addressing the men of the great multitude? Why is it, it, why is it his own life and not your own life? Is this a Genesis 3 reference? Anyway, I wanted to stave off the internet. Where was I? Oh, yeah. The unfinished tower and the mocking accusers. This is the appropriate time now to add in Revelation 12, 10 through 11. So let's go do that. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength. And the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accusers, accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Notice how they overcame Satan. How did they do it? They had two ways there. Two things mentioned. Did you notice that? The blood of the Lamb. What is the blood of the Lamb referring to? That is what? Salvation. What's the other way they overcame? Satan, who accuses them by the word of their testimony. What's that?
One is salvation, the blood of the Lamb. They overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb, and they overcame Satan by the word of the testimony, which I'm going to tell you is the foundation and the tower. They defeated Satan's lie and therefore dismissed Satan's accusations, Satan's mockings with their tower. Their towers, if you wish. They did not love their own lives. They finished their towers of testimony. How exactly did they do that? What are the components of a finished tower and a finished foundation? You have, obviously, there's testimony here. You are building a foundation and a tower because you believe that you should carry a cross beam and that you believe that Christ should be first and foremost. And you come after him. And so you start building a tower. What are the components in your tower? First question is, is do you have a tower? Second question is, do you even know what to do here? Are you even interested in building a tower? What is a tower? When we all get there, are we all going to have to look at our towers next to somebody else's tower? Go, holy mackerel, honey child, I hope he doesn't come by and look at my little puny tower. What is your tower? What's your foundation of the tower? You will not be surprised that my position on the tower's foundation is John 8.24. John 8.24 is the absolute Godhood of Christ. Do you have that as your foundation? Therefore I say to you, John 8.24, Therefore I say to you, for if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. That is the foundation of your tower, my view. You must believe that Jesus Christ is the I Am. The foundation of the tower is that Christ is the I Am. He is the I Am of all that is created. This is why I find the Watchtower organization that rings my doorbell to be the most ironic of all named organizations. They have no foundation. They have no tower. They do not believe that Jesus Christ is the I Am at all. They think he's a created being that wasn't even body resurrected. And they knock on the door and say, hi, we're from the Watchtower. And I just go, oh, really? Why don't we go to John or Luke 14, 25 through 35 and let's start figuring out what a tower is. Why don't you call yourself the, the Watch something, but you put in tower and you condemn yourselves. Many Christians have crumbling towers and very few bricks. Some of them don't even clear the ground. But now for us, we have people that celebrate when a Jewish Christian is killed. That's big time news. Look around us, as Bill said. Time is getting close. The world is descending into chaos and darkness. Time for tower building is getting short. Run out of time. Got to finish that tower because you stop the accusations of Satan that salvation is unjust. That's where we're going to start for this week. Next week, what is this surrendering king thinking? What's he doing? Why does he come after tower?